Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 38 to 41. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, our prayer for this morning is a simple one. Sanctify us by your word. Sanctify us by your word. For your word is truth. Your word is truth, unchanged, unchanging. It is a light in a dark place, a lamp unto our feet. And so, Lord, as we approach the precious topic of baptism, this precious ordinance that you have given to your church, we pray that you would make your word clear to us this morning. Where there is murkiness, give us clarity. Where there is cloudiness, give us lucidity. Where there is feebleness, give us strength and understanding. Lord, we pray these things that you would sanctify us for your name's sake and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is well known that the Reformation was one of the greatest time periods in the history of the church. But what is less well known is that the Reformation had a dark side to it. Perhaps the darkest side of the Reformation was the Protestants' treatment of their own brothers who practiced believers' baptism. Nearly all the reformers, from Martin Luther to John Calvin to John Knox to Ulrich Zwingli, practiced infant baptism. They sprinkled their babies with the waters of baptism. However, 1521, in Zurich, Switzerland, three men became convinced that the only people who should be baptized are believers. Felix Manns, Conrad Grable, and George Barak became convinced of believers' baptism. On January 21st, 1521, Conrad Grable baptized George Blaurock in the home of Felix Manns. They were called the Anabaptists. The leaders of Zurich convicted these three men of heresy and sentenced them to execution. They were sentenced to capital punishment because they believed that the only people who should be baptized are believers. The penalty? Death by drowning. Death by submersion. Death by immersion, if you will. Because they believed in baptism by immersion and not sprinkling, they were taunted. You want your baptism by immersion? We'll give you your baptism by immersion. We'll lower you into the water. You'll just never come out of the water. On January 5th, 1527, Felix Manns was drowned in the freezing cold waters of the Linmat River. City leaders of Zurich, including the reformer Ulrich Zwingli himself, looked on. Today in our series on the communion of the saints, we approach a topic which is both significant and complex, the topic of baptism. 
I approach this topic with trembling and humility. I am humbled because many of our Baptist forefathers were drowned for their beliefs, sometimes by fellow Protestants. These are beliefs which we hold to today, beliefs that we take for granted today. It is humbling to think that if we, Cornerstone Bible Church, existed in Zurich in the 1520s, we would be hunted down and executed for baptizing believers. We would be hunted down and executed, not just by Roman Catholics, but sometimes by our fellow Protestant brothers. When we started our series, we first asked the question, what is the church? Then we asked, what are the marks of the true church? And if you remember, there were three. The right doctrine of the word of God, the right exercise of church discipline, and the right administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are known as sacraments of the church, so-called because they represent sacred, holy practices of the church. They're also called ordinances of the church because Jesus Christ himself ordained and ordered that these practices should be done by his church in all places, in all times, until his return. This morning, we will address the ordinance of baptism. And I'd like to do so with three major questions. Number one, who do we baptize? Number two, how do we baptize? And number three, why do we baptize? First, who do we baptize? This is where we will spend the majority of our time. Who do we baptize? This question really comes down to two candidates, infants or believers, babies or Christians. Over the past 2,000 years of church history, there has been an intense debate between infant versus believers baptism. The theological term for infant baptism is the word pedobaptist, coming from the root word pais in Greek, which means infant or child. The theological term for believers baptism is the word credo-baptist, or as some pronounce it, credo-baptist, coming from the root word creed, which means to believe. As credo-baptists in this church, we say that baptism is only to be done following faith and repentance. That is, baptism is a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And we must realize, brethren, that when we say that, we are by far the minority. It's not even close. We must realize that the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians baptize infants. They baptize their babies. We are by far outnumbered across the world and throughout history. Outside of Protestantism, Russian Orthodox, Eastern or Greek Orthodox, Coptic Christian, Roman Catholics, all of them practice infant baptism. Within Protestantism, all denominations, Anglicans, Presbyterians, Methodists, Congregationalists, United Reformed, all denominations practice infant baptism with one exception. Since the Reformation, the only denomination to not baptize infants and to only baptize believers is the Baptists. The Baptists were the only denomination since the Reformation to only baptize believers, to practice credo-baptism. For historical reasons, most non-denominational independent churches in America follow in the heritage of the Baptists as practicing credo-baptism. I want to say at the outset that we should be gracious to those who were baptized as infants and to those who baptize infants. Perhaps there are some in our midst today 
who were baptized as babies. And we have so much to learn through great Protestant paedo-baptists. The greatest theologians of history were infant Baptists. Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, John Owen, J.I. Packer, infant Baptists. The Puritans themselves were infant Baptists, with the exception of the tinker of Bedford, John Bunyan. Many of history's greatest preachers were infant Baptists. Whitfield, Wesley, Lloyd-Jones, J.C. Ryle, save for the prince of preachers himself, Charles Spurgeon. Many of our own country's greatest theologians were infant Baptists. Jonathan Edwards, Archibald Alexander, Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, John Murray, the list goes on and on and on. The annals of church history are saturated with the voices and pens of great infant Baptists. I personally have sat at the feet of these men. I have been discipled by these men. I have followed these men as they have followed Christ. But when it comes to the issue of baptism, I cannot go where the scripture does not go. We do not follow great men who are men at best. We do not follow great men who are mere men. We follow the word of God. Our ultimate allegiance is to the word of God alone. The ultimate rule for faith and practice in our lives must be the word of God alone. And I believe that the scriptures speak clearly. We are only to baptize believers. So let's look first at paedo-baptism. There are two basic positions within paedo-baptism. One major category is the Roman Catholic viewpoint. When Roman Catholics baptize infants, it is called christening. Christening is extremely important in Roman Catholicism because they say that you cannot be saved unless you are baptized. Salvation is dependent on baptism. Or to put it another way, baptism is necessary for salvation. Don't take it from me. Let's hear one of Roman Catholicism's greatest theologians, Ludwig Ott. Ott says, baptism by water is necessary for all men without exception for salvation. All men without exception. The work of baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, Roman Catholics teach that baptism is necessary for salvation because they teach that baptism actually causes regeneration. So when an infant is baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, at that very moment, when they are sprinkled with water, that baby is reborn. That baby is born again. That baby is regenerated. Ott says, baptism is that sacrament in which man, being washed with water in the name of the three divine persons, is spiritually reborn. Now, that seems interesting. Because that baby is spiritually reborn, even though they don't believe. Even though they don't believe. At the moment of baptism, the infant cannot believe. They absolutely cannot exercise conscious, saving faith, and yet they are reborn. Well, how does that work? Ott says, faith need not be present. The faith which infants lack is replaced by the faith of the church. So does the infant believe? Roman Catholics will say, yes. The infant believes because the church believes for them. The faith of the church is granted to the baby. The baby's lack of faith is substituted by the faith of the church. The church believes in the place of the baby. The church believes for the baby because they cannot believe for themselves. 
Now, to understand how this works, it is very important to introduce a term in Roman Catholic theology that will unlock a lot of what we understand about how they practice. And that term is ex opera operato. The Catholic Encyclopedia says, translated, it means from the work of the work itself, or more loosely, from the act itself. This means that grace is the result of the objective act. So basically, the act saves, not the faith. Basically, this means baptism itself, the act itself of sprinkling that baby has saving power. It is holy water that you are sprinkling on that baby. It's not the faith that matters. It's the act that matters. When a priest baptizes a baby, at that very moment, that baby is regenerated. And it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe at the moment of your baptism. The act itself has saving power. Look what Ott says. Even if it be unworthily received, the baptized person is incorporated into the mystical body of Christ. Listen, every validly baptized person becomes a member of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Notice what Ott says. Even if unworthily received. And what he means is, even if you didn't believe, even if you had no faith, even hypothetically speaking, if you are dragged kicking and screaming to your baptism against your will, it doesn't matter. If you are baptized, you are incorporated into the church. If you are baptized, that very act has the power to regenerate you. The bottom line is this. Catholics believe Without baptism, you cannot be saved. No baptism, no salvation. No baptism, no heaven. Now you understand why many Roman Catholics want to be baptized on their deathbed. And now you understand why many Roman Catholic parents place such a huge priority and emphasis on baptizing their children. I was talking to my neighbor across the street a few years ago who was taking his infant daughter to be baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. We were just talking, and he said in passing, oh, it's really expensive. I said, expensive? Well, what do you mean? He said, it's going to cost me $50, 50 bucks to baptize her in the Roman Catholic Church. Brethren, Rome charges for the salvation of infants. Rome requires money in exchange for the regeneration of babies. But of course they do. For who would not pay for their child's salvation? Who would not give a mere $50 to have your child go to heaven? Brethren, does this not fly directly in the face of the free offer of the gospel? If Isaiah the prophet were here this morning, he might, just might, respond with Isaiah 55 verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. If Jesus Christ himself were here to respond to the Roman Catholic Church, he might, just might, overturn the money tables. And he might, just might, say, stop making my father's house a place of business. Brethren, if we read our Bible at all, we see clearly that we are not saved by works. We are not saved by money. We are not saved by the church. We are not saved by baptism. We are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Brothers and sisters, baptism does not have the inherent power to save anyone. 
Jesus saves, not baptism. So that's the Roman Catholic understanding of baptism. Now let's look at the next position on baptism. These are our Protestant paedo-baptist brethren. There are some Protestants who baptize babies, but they do so for a different reason than Roman Catholics. And I think the easiest way to understand this position is to do so by contrast, by comparison. Roman Catholics emphasize the present. When that baby is sprinkled with that water, at that very moment, that baby is regenerated. When that baby is baptized by the priest in the Roman Catholic Church, at that very instant, that baby is reborn. The emphasis is on the present. Credo-Baptists emphasize the past. We say that baptism is a public profession of a faith that is already there. This person is already a believer. This person is already saved. This person is already regenerated. And this person is merely making a public profession of something that has already happened. We emphasize the past. What does that leave? The future. The future. And that's what Protestant Pado-Baptists emphasize. Protestant Pado-Baptists say, that when a baby is baptized as an infant, there is a high probability or likelihood that this baby will one day grow up and believe the gospel and be saved. There is a high probability or likelihood that this baby will grow up and one day be regenerated and saved. Now, the language is very important. Because they know as Protestants that baptism absolutely cannot and does not guarantee anyone's future salvation. So they speak in terms of probability or likelihood. It's merely a probability. It's merely a likelihood. Now what support do they give for their position? There's so much that could be said here, but I'm just going to try to boil it down into two of the major arguments. The first, support for infant baptism from the Protestant Pado-Baptists, is the theological argument of covenant community. Covenant community. The idea of the covenant community starts in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God made his covenant with Abraham, and the sign of this covenant was circumcision. Genesis 17, 10 through 11 says, God says to Abraham, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Notice God says to Abraham, this is my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. So the covenant involves all of the family of Abraham, all of the physical descendants of Abraham, all of the physical lineage of Abraham. All the male descendants of Abraham were circumcised as a sign that they were in the covenant. The whole of Israel, male Israel, was circumcised as the outward sign of being a part of the Abrahamic covenant. So circumcision then is the sign of the covenant community in the Old Testament. If you are circumcised, you're considered part of the covenant community. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Acts 2, 38 to 39. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So Pedro Baptist say, see, it's the same language. He's paraphrasing Genesis 17. The promise is for you and your children, just like the Abrahamic covenant, for you and your descendants, for you and your children, for you and your descendants. Therefore, baptism replaces circumcision. Baptism is the New Testament 
counterpart to circumcision. It is the New Testament equivalent of circumcision. Baptism corresponds to circumcision. Baptism is now the outward sign that you are a part of the covenant community of the New Testament. So just as infants of Israel were circumcised as a sign that they were in the covenant community, the infants of Christians should be baptized as a sign that they are in the covenant community. Baptism, then, functions in the same way as circumcision. It doesn't show that you are saved. It shows that you are a part of the covenant community. I'll say it again. Baptism functions in the same way as circumcision. It doesn't show that you are saved. It shows that you are a part of the covenant community. This is by far the most important argument for infant baptism. The second argument is the biblical pattern of household baptisms. When you read through the New Testament, there are instances in which the whole household was baptized along with the first person who believed. And Protestant paedobaptists say, this means that there must have been an infant in those households. They give as examples Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1 and the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 who both had everyone in their household baptized. So they say, there must have been an infant in the household of Stephanus. There must have been an infant in the household of the Philippian jailer. Therefore, we ought to baptize infants. Well, how do we critique the Paedobaptist position? Let me simply present three arguments. First, the difference in the outcome of faith. So remember, Paedobaptists say that if we baptize our infants, there is a high probability or likelihood that this baby will one day grow up to be saved, just like circumcision. But brothers and sisters, if you read the Old Testament, all you need to do is read the Old Testament, and you will find out that is not what happened. Israel was a circumcised nation, and yet Israel was an apostate nation. The children of Israel were circumcised, and yet the vast majority of them grew up to be idol-worshiping unbelievers who were rebellious against Yahweh. What does the prophet Isaiah say? There is only a remnant who are saved. They rebelled against Yahweh. So simply put, if you're going to say that infant baptism signifies a high probability or likelihood of future salvation, you obviously don't see that reality with circumcision. In fact, the opposite was true. Circumcision did not correspond to a high probability of salvation. It corresponded to a low probability of salvation. Secondly, the difference in covenant communities. In the Old Covenant, the covenant community was physical. It was a physical people. It included all the physical lineage of Abraham. But spiritually speaking, the covenant community was a mixture of the redeemed and unredeemed. Spiritually speaking, the covenant community was a mixture of believer and unbeliever. Look at this verse, Genesis 17, 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Who is circumcised in this verse? Who is circumcised in this verse? Ishmael. Ishmael. Ishmael is not the child of promise. Ishmael is not a believer. Ishmael is not redeemed. And we all know who claims their descent from Ishmael. The prophet Muhammad. The Muslims. 
the Muslims claim their descent from the line of Ishmael. The point is, in the Old Testament, the covenant community was determined by physical lineage. You could be an unbeliever and you could still be circumcised. You could be unredeemed and you could still be a part of the covenant community. But that is not true in the new covenant. The new covenant community, the church, is not physically determined, it is spiritually determined. The church is to be a spiritual people. You were not born into this community, you can only be reborn into this community. The church only consists of believers. The new covenant community only consists of believers. That's the definition of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God and they shall be my people, and they will all know me, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Does that sound like an unbeliever to you? Does that sound like an unbeliever to you? Of course not. That's a description of a believer. The only people in the New Covenant community are people who know the Lord. The only people in the New Covenant community are people who are forgiven. Only believers are a part of the New Covenant community. There is no such thing as an unbeliever in the New Covenant. And this is the fundamental difference between Pedobaptist and Credobaptist theology. This is the fundamental difference between infant baptism and historical Baptist theology. Pedo-Baptists believe that the church consists of believers and their children. Whereas Credo-Baptists say the church only consists of believers. And this is what we have been saying all along. What is the title of our series? The communion of the saints. Only the saints belong in the church. Only the saints are included in the church. Only the redeemed are included in the church. It is a distinctive of credo-baptist theology that we seek, as best as our ability, a regenerate church membership. Because we believe only believers are included in the church. Now let's look again at this key text. Acts 2, 38 to 39. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Who is the promise for? Yes, it's for you and your children. But don't stop there. Don't stop there because the verse doesn't stop there. Don't stop there because the Bible doesn't stop there. Don't stop there because the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. There is a condition. There is a qualifier. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. As many as will experience the effectual inward salvific call of God. As many as who will be born again by the gospel call of God. That's who this promise is for. This verse is not talking about baptizing children of believers. This verse is talking about baptizing people who are believers. What about the household baptisms? According to infant Baptists, in the household baptisms of the New Testament, there had to be an infant in those households. But I believe if we read the text closely, there is a lack of evidence that there were any infants in any of those households. Let's look at the case of the Philippian jailer. Acts 16, 32 to 34. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The question is not, was the whole household baptized? I mean, that's clear. The whole household was baptized. The question is, was there a baby in that household? I beg to differ. Verse 34 says, those who were baptized were those having believed in God. Having believed in God with his whole household. Verse 34 makes clear that his whole household believed in God. The people in that house were those who could hear the word of the Lord, believe, and be baptized. What about 1 Corinthians 1.16? I baptized the household of Stephanus. Oh, I mean, for sure, there had to be an infant in that household, right? I mean, it's the whole household. Well, not so fast. 1 Corinthians 16.15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. The people who were in the household of Stephanus were people who devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They were people who devoted themselves to ministry. Brothers and sisters, infants cannot devote themselves to ministry. Infants cannot devote themselves to the service of the saints. If you look closely at the household baptisms in the New Testament, I believe they are descriptions of household faith. If anything, they are descriptions of believer's baptism, not infant baptism. There is nothing in the household baptism passages that ever mentions a single baby ever being baptized. I once knew a brother who was applying for seminary. He was thinking about where to go. He was deciding between Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, which is an excellent Presbyterian seminary, and he was deciding between Covenant Seminary and a Baptist seminary. But he wasn't quite sure about infant baptism. He was trying to make his decision was talking to me. A few months later, I ran into him again, and I asked him what he was deciding, and he decided against Covenant Seminary. And I asked him why. He said, because I could not find a single example of a baby being baptized in the New Testament. That's it. That should settle it. The reality is, you could look through your whole Bible. You could comb through every page, every paragraph, every verse, every word, and you will not find one single direct reference to an infant being baptized in the New Testament. That's it. And this leaves us with the last position. The position of believer's baptism, also called credo-baptism. There are three lines of evidence for credo-baptism. The first is Christ-commanded believer's baptism. In the Great Commission, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The command is clear. Make disciples first, then baptize. The order of words means something. The sequence of words matters. It's make disciples first, then baptize the disciples. Not baptize and then make disciples. Order matters. Sequence matters. Where is the command to baptize your infants? It's just an honest question. Parents, in the Bible, where do you find the command, baptize your babies? We are to pray for our children. We are to evangelize our children. But when it comes to baptizing our children, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. All I see is Jesus telling us to baptize believers. 
disciples, followers. Secondly, the apostles continued believers' baptism. Acts 2.41, so then those who had received his word were baptized. Acts 8.12, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. When they received the word, they were baptized. When they believed, they were baptized. The clear pattern of the New Testament is believe, be baptized, believe, be baptized. How much more clear does it need to get? How much more clear does God need to make it? Thirdly, the early church confirmed believer's baptism. The early church up until the third century practiced believer's baptism. For the first 100 years after the apostles, the early church practiced believer's baptism. They practiced the same doctrine the apostles did. The first instance of the infant of the practice of infant baptism was in the early third century when Tertullian mentioned it as something that was new. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of the early church should not be underestimated. So that's the first question. Second question is how do we baptize? Or rather, what is the mode of baptism? There are three options. One, immersion, which is lowering person completely under the water and bringing them up out of the water. Two, pouring a significant amount of water over their head. Or three, sprinkling a small amount of water on their head. Now, I believe that the Bible says very clearly that immersion is to be the mode of baptism. The word baptize in Greek is baptizo, and it literally means to dip into, to dip into. Matthew 3.16, baptism of Jesus. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. He was lowered into the water enough to come up out of the water. Immersion has to be the mode of baptism in this verse. I had to chuckle to myself a little bit because Olivia and I obtained a French children's Bible from Quebec, Canada, which is primarily French-speaking. And of course, the French are heavily influenced by Roman Catholicism. And at the time, we were trying to teach Eva French. And by we, I mean Olivia, not me. <laughs> I can say I was trying to teach French, but I wasn't. And I had to chuckle to myself a little bit, because as I was flipping through the book at the baptism of Jesus, here is Jesus being sprinkled by John the Baptist while he's standing in the River Jordan. It's like, so that's how they get away with that verse. But if you're going to sprinkle, why go into the river at all? Why don't you just sprinkle him right next to the river? Or why don't you just sprinkle him in Jerusalem? Why can't you just take a bottle of water and I'm, I'm just, just being honest. Why can't you just sprinkle them anywhere? Why do you have to go into the Jordan at all? You can't have it both ways. Let's look at another example. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8, 38 to 39. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. They both went down into the water, and they came up out of the water. As far as I'm concerned, the New Testament speaks clearly that immersion is to be the express mode of baptism. Third and last, why do we baptize? Or what is the purpose of baptism? I'll just mention four purposes briefly. First, baptism shows our public profession of faith in the triune God. When we are baptized, we confess the name of the triune God. Matthew 28, 19 again. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is identification with the triune God. 
When you are baptized, you are publicly stating, I am immersed into the name of the triune God. When you are baptized, you are saying, I belong to God the Father. I belong to God the Son. I belong to God the Spirit. He has ownership over me. So wherever you go, you now bear the name of the triune God. You now represent the name of the triune God. You do not just represent your personal name, your first name. You do not just represent your family name, your last name. You represent the name of God. Secondly, baptism shows that we are united to Christ. Romans 6.4 Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In baptism, in the Lord's Supper, God has given us two ordinances, which are physical pictures of spiritual realities. They are visible representations of spiritual realities. They are symbols of spiritual realities. And consider the picture of baptism. Consider the symbol of baptism. Being plunged into the water confesses that you are being buried with Christ. And being brought out of the water represents your newness of life and resurrection with him. There's a symbolism of union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so baptism pictures death to your old way of life, and it confesses that it is now no longer my life. It is Christ's life in me. In fact, the early church used to baptize believers in cross-shaped pools because they wanted to show that when you are baptized, you are now going to take up your cross daily and follow him in newness of life. Thirdly, baptism shows that we are united to one another. Many think of baptism as only your individual public profession of faith. And that's true. But there's more to it than that. Ephesians 4, 3 through 5 says, Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just also you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Notice, one body, one baptism. There's a connection between baptism and unity. Baptism is about the church. Baptism is about unity. Baptism shows that we are visibly united to the new covenant people of God. We are connected to one another through the waters of baptism. And this is why all believers are to go through the waters of baptism. And this is why we go through the exact same rite the same practice, the same ordinance, the same ritual, if you will. We all do the same thing. It's not like Harry's profession of faith over here is to get baptized, but Jimmy's profession of faith over here is to travel to Jerusalem. And Linda's profession of faith over here is to sell all her belongings and move to a monastery. No, we all go through the exact same ordinance performed in the exact same way to unify us. We go through a uniform ordinance to unify us as the body of Christ. Fourth and last, baptism shows what God has done for us. When we are baptized, sometimes we can unwittingly put the focus on ourselves. And we don't mean to, but sometimes our culture gets the better of us. We can sometimes say, my baptism is about how I am pledging my life to follow Christ. It is my public profession of faith. I am publicly stating that I am a Christian. And yes, that is true. That is absolutely true. But we should not forget there is another reality. Brothers and sisters, in reality, baptism is not mainly about showing us showing about what we do for God. It's about showing what God has done for us. 
As a believer, my baptism and your baptism is not primarily about what we do for the Savior. It's about what the Savior does for us. It's not primarily about our faith or our pledge or our commitment, although those are absolutely inherently true, but the focus ought to be on the grace and glory of God. And so when we witness baptisms, we ought not just to say, wow, look at what this believer is doing for God. We ought also to say, wow, look at what God has done for this believer. Baptism shows what God has miraculously done for you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not a believer, your greatest need is not to be baptized. Baptism won't save you. Jesus saves. You need to go to him and call upon him and come to Jesus, just as we heard in the first hour. If you are a believer here this morning and you have not been baptized as a believer, the Bible urges you to publicly profess your faith in the triune God. The Bible urges you to show your union with Jesus Christ. The Bible urges you to show your unity with the body of Christ. And the Bible urges you to show what God has done for you. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we are debtors to mercy alone. It is a wonder that you would love us. Your kindness is unspeakable. Your grace unmeasured. Your love vast and free. Thank you, O oh God, for who you are and what you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.